wild world. Presented by... Do you know Raisin, the natural wine app? It's a guide to natural winemakers, bars, restaurants, and wine shops all around the world guaranteed 30% natural wine. This goes hand-in-hand with local, seasonal, and organic food. Not to mention, these are people with a locally sourced mindset. So you're going to find the best spots to eat and drink well wherever you are in the world by downloading the app at Raisin.Digital. And Disgorgeous, the only wine podcast. Disgorgeous. And this is Evan Donovan, the owner of Demimond, and I want to thank Wild World for having us as a sponsor. You can come over and check us out at 257 Verrett Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Lots of good food, great wines, great coffee. Demimondbk.com. I have no problem projecting. Okay, so we'll get this started. Uh, I will let y'all know that the only thing Lou and I organized was a recipe. Uh, We have no idea what we're going to talk about, um, so this is going to be fun. Um, But I will introduce myself. (laughs) My name is Jory. Uh, I'm a fermentationist. I also do herbal alchemy. I'm a partner at a restaurant I have with my husband in Hudson, New York, called Fish and Game. Um, And I have... (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, And a lot of my fermentation work has uh, flourished through the opening of our restaurant because I uh, use a lot of what's considered food waste and turn it into fermentation so that we have flavors for the restaurant. Uh, So herb stems, carrot peels, carrot tops, things that don't go into a dish, I collect and I turn it into vinegars and um, lacto-fermentations, which will cover exactly what a lacto-fermentation is. But it's a great way to use up food waste because through fermentation process, you... um, you soften the cells. So things that are tough, you know, fibrous, all of that, they, they soften up through fermentation and they release all the flavors that they still have and it becomes another edible element and can elevate dishes and also save you money. Um, so that was ultimately, you know, my motivation along with um, some health benefits. You know, people talk a lot about probiotics, um, It's sort of a controversial conversation. I'm not going to bore you with any of that. But um, probiotics are not having food that is sort of pre-digested, so to speak, through fermentation is good for your body. It has a lot of vitamins and minerals, and it's easier on your system. So it's just, it's beneficial and delicious. Um, So that is who I am. I have an independent company called Lady Jane's Alchemy, and I focus mostly on vinegar uh, on my website, but I do some lacto-fermentations in sauce form. So I do a Worcestershire sauce, um, and sometimes I'll do a fermented chili sauce, and every now and then I'll do like a fish sauce or something. And then I do a bunch of different um, squid squid sauce, apparently. That's his favorite. (laughs) Um, So... Uh, and then I have vinegars and uh, some herbal alchemy stuff. So that's me. Who are you? Hi, my name is Lou Amder, and uh, I'm 
really thrilled to be here at Wild World, a festival that celebrates wild fermentation. And when Byron invited me to participate and to participate with Jory, I thought it would be a great idea if we actually brought something that is actively fermenting just through the power of wild bacteria. And it's something that I feel in the natural wine world, we, we pay a lot of kind of blind obeisance to, that we talk about wild yeast, and that's all we want to say. It's like a checklist. Wild yeast, check, and then we move on. And no inoculation, check, and move on. And for me, the magic, the magic is... Thanks. The magic is all in the micro life that we cannot see with our naked eyes. Uh, yeast and bacteria, without which we do not have wine, we do not have beer, we do not have cheese. Uh, and it is thanks to these miraculous critters that we have these delicious things that make our lives so much better. So I thought it would be a great idea for us to actually taste stuff that's actually actively fermenting, and that's what we have before us today. Jory's idea was uh, to see if we could see any terroir difference between a West Coast sauerkraut and an East Coast sauerkraut. So I'm interested in tasting what she made. Um, I just want to warn you that uh, my... Kraut is actively bubbling. Uh, so when I opened it just now, I, I was sprayed with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, sauerkraut juice. So if I smell, not the first time, yeah. So just be aware that it's, it's an actively bubbling thing. Um, I, I was telling Jory this homely little tale just now. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with uh, a vigneron who I respect very much and uh, we were talking about this very topic, about wild fermentation. And I said, you would think that as you start to peel away the layers and understand not even a sub-dilettante level of uh, understanding of what's happening during fermentation and why um, all of the, uh, uh, the people that were involved with, with uh, establishing what, what today we call natural wine, why they were so uh, obsessed and focused on creating the optimal environment for wild fermentation, is you would think that the more analysis and the more scrutiny you give to the microlife and trying to understand what these microorganisms are doing, you would think that it would take some of the magic away, that it would make it somehow boring and because you maybe understand a little bit about it. And I said, for me, it's actually much worse. The more I understand, which means the less, but the, the less I understand, the more mysterious and magical it becomes, that these, these, this micro-life transforms grape juice into wine. And he leaned over the table and he said, that's because it is magic. And so, and I was just exclaiming to Jory how even though I've been making fermented pickles and sauerkraut for a number of years now, and I, make, I bake bread with, with, with a chef, I make Levan bread, uh, and I, I'm a geek, I'm a fucking geek, and I own a microscope, and I use it to look at 
stuff, whether it's sauerkraut or wine or compost. Um, the more you look, the more mysterious it becomes. So uh, I just want to op- open an invitation is that if you're intrigued by what's happening at the, at the micro level, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really quite a garden path to follow. So without further ado, let's taste some sauerkraut. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. Start recording this. To wine, when you talk about wine, uh, it's a lot of yeast capturing, especially when you're talking about native fermentation and you're capturing yeast that can turn sugars uh, into alcohol. And we're here at an event that has a lot of focus on beer. And cool. Uh, elements of beer like lambics is actually a lacto-fermentation. So lacto-fermentation is converting glucose into lactic acid. So it's all these different bacteria that exist in the world around us, but we're capturing them and determining how we want to harness them and convert them into an end product. So, you know, once you get into fermentation, you start learning the different ways to do it. One of the easiest ways, um, at least with food and with sauerkraut in particular, kimchi is another form, is you're using salt. Because a lot of other bacteria don't thrive in salt solutions, like a brine. Um, But uh, lactobacilli, which is the most dominant bacteria, uh, does thrive in salt. And it converts the glucose in your produce um, very quickly. And, and, and expeditiously. And these things exist on the plants that we're harvesting, like the cabbage. They exist on our bodies. They're in the air around us. So it's very easy to do native fermentation with these things on your kitchen counter, which is, that's what makes it so fun. So the reason that we talked about making different sauerkrauts for y'all to taste is because there is a tremendous amount of bacteria on the planet, and there's also a tremendous amount of yeast. I mean, we're talking like documented with actual names in terms of bacteria it's like 34,000 but there's an estimated like what I say five non-million that's five with 30 zeros um they were the first living organisms on the planet like this goes back like forever pre-human um but they're they're flavor influencers that's what makes the flavor of these things so For me to make a sauerkraut in my house in New York, and for Lou to make a sauerkraut in his house in L.A., and for me to buy a sauerkraut from two towns over, uh, they're all going to taste totally different. Um, And there's different ways to do it. When I do my fermentations, I put a weight in it, and I let the brine rise up naturally. So I'm still capturing all the microbes in the air while also working with the microbes that are in the cabbage inside the jar. You could also put your ingredients into a jar and do an airlock. And that way you're just working only with the microbes that exist on the cabbage itself. So I think that's why Luz is really crazy active um, because you used an airlock, yeah? Well, I used a picolet fermenter and there was quite a bit of airspace. Yeah. So there was plenty of air in there, but when I brought it for travel, I put it in a smaller mason jar. So I actually started mine in Taos, New Mexico. I just drove back like a minute ago, um, it feels like. Um, so mine was started in Taos and then kind of finished here in uh, where I live in Old Chatham. So uh, it's all over the place. Um, but I think that, you know, passing the different jars around and for y'all to taste and see if you can taste the differences um, is, 
is exciting and it does truly represent terroir. And you hear that term a lot, mostly with wine, but this goes deeper into food and beverages, you know, uh, kombucha is very popular and some kombuchas are terroir driven. Um, I specifically only work with native fermentation. Um, so my vinegars, each batch I make has variations. Even if I'm still making a strawberry vinegar every year, every strawberry vinegar tastes unique. Um, and that's what I love about it. I don't want it to taste the same. I want it to be like totally representative of time and place and what I'm using. Um, so yeah, we can definitely pass these around if y'all have forks. Um, Lou's is like really bubbling over. Mine, um, mine are very sour. Like I don't get a ton of uh, explosive activity much anymore. They just they just sort of bubble up and go slower. Um, I've been I've been doing this pretty much professionally for ten years. So I think at a certain point you harness a lot of those bacteria around you and they're not stabilized. It's not like they're like dormant or anything, but they, they are comfortable, right? They're like cozy under their blanket and they're not working as hard. Um, and then I got this one from the grocery store. This is from Hawthorne Valley School. Um, that's a, not too far from my house is. So these guys do native fermentation. It's a Steiner school. Steiner kind of started the whole cult of bio, bio uh, what am I trying? Dynamics, bioavailability, I guess that too. Um, and their stuff is like crazy sour. There's like no activity. So it's wild. And they do larger scale. How yeah, old so is it? How old is that? Yeah. And that I have no idea. So it tells you when to eat it by, but it doesn't tell you when the batch was made. Um, but even looking at the color, right? It's very dull. It's brown. It doesn't have a lot of like color activity going in it. So I feel like mine could, it would be better if I had like another two weeks. We just threw this idea together like a couple weeks ago and tried to push it. Um, but it's still, it's still got some, some funk in there for sure. So. Yeah, so I mean, so atmospheric pressure plays a part. So in Taos, I'm at high elevation. So I started this in Taos, and I've learned with my fermentations that even though I see activity in the jar, just like with boiling point of water, it's not actually bubbling um, at the rapid activity that it does at sea level. Um, so it, it took me a while to make that connection. I felt tricked, you know, I'm like, oh, it's active. And then I went to taste it, and I was like, why is this not effervescent? It's bubbling. It's because I'm at 9,000 feet, and it's just like pressure, you know, pushing up through as it's starting. Um, and then I drove. Lou put his on an airplane, right? So we're going through, like, atmospheric pressure differentiations, which definitely plays a part. Temperature plays a part. Um, and... Uh, we did the exact same recipe. We talked about it. Um, my favorite go-to for making any of my lacto-fermentations, whether it's a kimchi, a sauerkraut, if I'm just going to do a lacto-fermented onions, um, I work in ratios because I'm in the restaurant industry. I'm not making quart-sized jars. I'm making like five-gallon batch sizes and stuff. So for me to convert my recipes into ratios, I can make any size batch. So my favorite number is 3%. So for total weight of ingredients, if you're using water and ramps, if you're using just cabbage, if you're using onions and like, I don't know, a little bit of wine and fish sauce and water, like whatever it is, 
I add 3% sea salt. I'm a sea salt girl. I understand you can't use it if you're kosher, so then kosher salt obviously suffices. Um, but most salt has non-caking agents in it, so it'll make a murky solution. Um, and I think that kosher salt tastes metallic. I'm, I have a very sensitive palate, so I don't like imparting those flavors. Um, and sea salt has so many natural minerals. You know, it can really boost the, the health benefits and the mineral content of um, what you're working with. So we did the exact same recipe. Uh, we, we decided green cabbage. We decided to shred it. We decided 3% sea salt. Um, and, and now we can sort of pass them around and taste the difference. Um, mine is the small jar. Lou's is the very large active jar. <laughs> and then we'll follow with the uh, store-bought Hawthorne Valley. Um, while I pass around, you want to? I think this is Take uh, it away, Lou. an unprecedented sauerkraut tasting. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I think anything that's in the kraut right now is going to kill any, yeah. No. One, of, one of the things uh, that I found really surprising about um, wild yeast fermentation with wine that is that um, the, the primary yeast that we use to ferment wine, whether it's wild fermentation or or inoculated fermentation is a yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's the same yeast that's used to make bread. And there's a wild, wild forms of it, and there's also cultivated forms of it as well. And with wild Saccharomyces, um, and this is why wild fermentation of, of, of wine can be a little challenging, is that wild Saccharomyces... Um, really only flourishes where you're actively making wine. So if you're starting from scratch with a new winery and new fields where you've never made wine before, you're going to have a very low population of Saccharomyces yeast. And years ago when I visited uh, one of the OG natural winemakers, uh, Terry Puzelot, uh, I was really impressed to see that um, how... He takes uh, his pomace, uh, the, the pressed must from his press, and just puts it out in a section of his field and uses it as compost. And there's a huge mound of, uh, of grape compost. And uh, either systematically or intuitively, he knew that this is a way to encourage more Saccharomyces, more yeast to flourish. So... It's not like any place in the country you can just start making wild yeast fermented wine. You can fail uh, because there's insufficient populations of wild yeast. However, after you start doing it for a while, you'll start to build up a, a critical mass of yeast. Now, with bacteria, it's very different because, as Jory was saying, they're everywhere. They're in the air we breathe. You don't need to um, uh, worry. Uh, you can cut up cabbage, add 3% salt, and you're, you're pretty much, unless the cabbage was damaged, and I've had situations where the cabbage, there was some thing on the cabbage and the, and the sauerkraut non, was... non-organic, you know, because they're being sprayed, right. which kills... The whole point is when you're, when you're buying something that's not organic, 
it's sprayed with things to keep it from decomposing, right? And that'll affect, and that'll affect the bacteria. This is decomposing. This yeah. is controlled rotting. You know, so when you're buying when you're buying things that aren't organic, it makes it very hard to ferment them. So, but just just as a model for how fermentation works, um, lacto fermentation is satisfying because you have a ninety percent success rate. Wine is a much lower success rate, uh, and it's it's uh, if you're interested in how things ferment. Making a batch of sauerkraut is a fantastic place to start because the startup cost is, approaches zero. Uh, you just need a jar and some salt and some cabbage, which is the cheapest vegetable, even organic. Yeah. And within a few weeks, you have what you have in front of you. So there's no real uh, tremendous amount of skill involved in making sauerkraut um, other than following a recipe. Um, Whereas if you were trying to make a wild yeast fermented wine and you're doing it in a facility and in an environment where no one has been doing it ever, uh, there's a chance you're not going to succeed or you're, uh, uh, it's not going to be a very flourishing fermentation. So yeah. one big difference between wine and sauerkraut is, of course, yeast versus bacteria, but also uh, the um, distribution of lactic bacteria. Are there, lactic bacteria are everywhere. Uh, whereas uh, uh, Saccharomyces yeast and the other wild yeast that ferment uh, grapes are not are, are everywhere, but they're not uh, flourishing necessarily. So, the, uh, I read that the Saccharomyces was originally cultivated from tree bark, most likely a pine. Um, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I read something wrong. It wasn't from Wikipedia, I promise. I don't think that's true. I Is think it? it's, uh, I mean, Saccharomyces yeast, unless it's been genetically modified, it all comes from wild fermentation. And what uh, Y yeast and the other uh, large uh, yeast supplying companies do is they isolate specific strains. Right. So there are over 200 strains of Saccharomyces yeast alone, and that's just one yeast that's responsible in wild yeast fermentation. There's many other yeasts. Some crap out at 2 to 4% alcohol. Saccharomyces starts crapping out at about 13 or so. And then there's other yeasts that are slow, and if they will eventually, if you have them, crap out at about 16 or 17 percent if you have wine that has a lot of sugar in it, a must that has a lot of sugar. You can do a natural ferment if you have the proper yeast right. up to 17 percent with a natural fermentation. But typically with natural wines, uh, we're seeing alcohols around between 10 and a half and 14 percent just because uh, the, the main yeast that gets wine to that level is Saccharomyces. And what happens at the microcellular level is the cells... Um, they start to collapse because they can't take the osmotic pressure of the alcohol. So, uh, and they die, and then there's no more of them. Um, Do y'all taste the difference between them? Not just texturally, but like acid, salt, flavor, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you're here at a wine event, or, you know, all weekend if you've been like us at wine events, you're tasting... You're tasting same grapes produced from different regions all natively, and they're all wildly different, right? I mean, there's no difference. And I, that's what fascinates me about it. It's like that's, that's ultimately what compels me against it or, or you know, toward it. And, and it was really my love of, of wine. And when my husband and I, you know, started making a dedication to native 
fermented wine and, and indigenous grapes and you know wild fermentation, all those fantastic words, you know, trying to learn a bit about it and thinking like, why wouldn't I ferment my food the same way? You know, like, you know, what's the difference? I remembered also when I was getting started with um, vinegar, I'd mentioned I, I do a ton of vinegar fermentation and that's acetic acid. This is uh, lactic acid, but um, acetic acid is a little bit more challenging for uh, native fermentation just because there is a ton of acetobacter in the air around us. Um, it is easy, but to harness it and get it to, to convert quickly, whether you're doing it, you know, starting with sugar and water and say apples or I'm using already made wine, uh, it's easy to have failed batches. And I remembered reading about um, uh, some, you know, natural wine producer in France and he intentionally left his vats of wine open during fermentation so that spiders and bugs and flies would land on the top and then crawl around the beams in his barn because they, one, carry yeast with them, and then they take the liquid from the top of the wine and they're traveling it, you know, across his barn. So it's sort of like he, he's, he's setting the stage. He, he's sort of dominating his space. And I was like, you know, I was struggling with my vinegars, and I was like, why wouldn't I do that with my vinegar? So I get a, a successful batch of vinegar I finally made, and I, I literally, rather than drinking it, my first batch of successful vinegar, I took a paintbrush, and I dipped it, and I painted the beams in my barn. And even still, when I clean my vinegar tanks, I dump all of the sludge and the dead bacteria and you know all of the stuff at the bottom of the tanks around my vinegar tanks so that I can dominate my, my bacteria and they, they attract the same bacteria that are in the air, right? They're like down here having a party. They see some of their friends float by and they're like, hey buddy, come, it's cool down here, you know? And it's like, I, I want to, you know, I wanted to create that party. So, and I still do that. And I've been making vinegar successfully for 10 years, but it's like the wind can blow differently at any point. I can have a group of people come over and one person can fuck up all of my fermentations with their off microbiome. <laughs> and it's like, I don't, I don't want to chance that. So I just make sure I like really, really, really dominate uh, the environment. When I tell people, when they're like, what do I do when I'm getting started? It's like, I'm not going to paint my house in vinegar or, you know, even lactic acid and stuff. And it's like, you can, you can literally like every couple of days dip into your jar as it's going and like paint your jar and just kind of like sponge around the jar that way, even just in this little space, you're like totally locking it in and attracting it. Once you have successful batches going, it's really, really easy. It's just the initial stage of getting it started that's the challenge. Um, but there are not a lot of people. There is fermentation is a, a fermentation in food at least is a very, 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 very massive trend right now, and it's phenomenal. These are ancient techniques. These are ancient methods. None of this is new. None of us created any of it. Um, but it's great that it is a trend because it's healthy and it's exciting and it gets people to think about whole food and healthy foods. But there aren't a lot of people that understand how to do it spontaneously and as Lou was talking about there's a ton of domesticated yeast there's a ton of domesticated bacteria and people are buying that and adding it to their fermentations and and it it changes everything it makes everything taste one-dimensional you lose um, a lot of the beneficial native bacteria in the air around you that are even good for your allergies you know seasonal colds all of that stuff so it 
Yeah. And it's lactic acid and anesthetic acid, both, Absolutely. that are so important to what we love in wine. And so the parallels between wild fermented wine, even though there's no yeast, yeast for lactic fermentation is is, is a bit of the enemy. A a little bit is okay, but you try to keep it under control because um, it'll it'll fuck up the vegetables eventually and taste kind of nasty. But um, uh, it's with wine, uh, of course, the yeast is responsible for creating alcohol, but alcohol is not the only delicious thing in wine. Uh, it's, there's also acids, and there's two basic, two, two basic kinds of acids, lactic acid, which you're tasting today in the sauerkraut, uh, and it's the same fucking bacteria yeah. that's making the lactic acid in the sauerkraut that makes the lactic acid in wine. So Acetic wine, acid is, yeah. is another bacteria, acetobacter, and which is not involved in this kind of fermentation, but that's yet another kind of acid. Uh, in natural wine, some wines have a lot of vol- a lot of volatile acidity, a lot of acetic acid. Some have a little less, uh, but it's it's a component of all wines. Uh, anything that you want to put in your mouth that's vinous has some level of acetic acid. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm always trying to crystallize uh, what. What's the 25 cent explanation of a, of, a, of a scientific concept that you can sort of package and give to somebody in about 30 seconds? And so my 25 cent explanation for acid is you don't want to talk about molecular weights and you don't want to talk about the physics and electrochemistry of acids. Uh, or I do. Well, I, you and I do. <laughs> Uh, but and if, if you have 30 seconds to tell somebody about what acid is and then move on, it, it's, you're probably not going to get into that. So, so what, I, what, I've come, what I've decided is that the easiest way to understand, and you're tasting it right on your forks right now, um, why is acid so, such a significant component of wine? Why is it so important? And wines that don't have sufficient acidity are not fun to drink. Why is that? Well, acid is a molecule or an atom that has extra protons. It wants to give protons away. And so when you put something that has acid in your mouth, you're bombarding your tongue with protons. Your tongue is being attacked by a proton torpedo. Now, your, your tongue is not defenseless. So think about it on a physiological level. Acid is less of flavor and more of a texture. And it's the texture of your tongue being attacked by acid. Ah! Your tongue is like, it's being, that's the sound of the, of the protons. Um, so your tongue is being attacked by protons. Now your tongue is not defenseless and your, your oral mucosa are not defenseless against acid. What does your mouth do when it's a being attacked by acid? Your, your salivary glands create saliva. And that's what makes wine refreshing and fun to drink. And so there's this, you're, you're physiologically stimulated by the acid. Your brain, you don't tell your brain, your brain, you don't say, hey, you better make some more acid, uh, otherwise your tongue's going to fall off. I do. You're, you just, your autonomic nervous system creates saliva, and that coats your mouth, and that's what makes wine refreshing, is that unconscious stimulation of your mouth. So 
that's my more than 25 cent explanation. But uh, so your tongue is actually being bombarded by, by protons, by subatomic particles. And uh, thanks to that, we have these refreshing things, whether it's kefir or kombucha or sauerkraut or pet nat yeah. uh, or uh, any wine that you really want to drink. There's, there's some level of acidity. Yeah. Uh, and some of these uh, beneficial acids help balance out other acids. I was just talking about this because I did a demo, a very quick demo on vinegar um, at Peripheral, our wine event we had on Saturday. Um, but, you know, the predominant acid in our, in our stomach that, you know, mixes with bile that's released from the liver is hydrochloric acid. So that's what, you know, like you get acid reflux. That's what burns. It hurts. Um, but these acids balance that out. And so, like, you're at a wine event, you're over-tasting, you feel like you've got, like, mouth fatigue, your tongue is, like, totally irritated, and you're like, oh, like, the thought of another glass of wine is going to, like, kill me. It's like, literally just take a spoonful of sauerkraut, and it neutralizes you. Have a little sip of vinegar, and it seems counterintuitive, because it's another acid. Uh, but it does, say, it does, like, calm down the hydrochloric acid that's reacting in your stomach from all the different um, elements from from wine drinking as well. And then another thing that's like interesting with the acids that come out in wine as a byproduct of yeast and fermentation is it produces esters. And esters are the fla- really the flavor elements uh, that happen in wine fermentation. And, you know, it's like a Sauvignon Blanc, you know, in general, I've had some that have blown my mind, but in general, it's like, oh, it tastes, you know, pineapple-y and tropical. And it's like, that's like a determining factor of a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, you know, these are th- that's because of the type of esters that are produced during fermentation. And if you're using a domesticated yeast that's targeting those flavors, it's going to be stronger versus native fermentation where it's much softer and more compelling. Um, but, you know, have, the acids help you pick up those, those notes, ultimately. Um, but then having all these delicious fermented foods helps you neutralize so you don't go to bed with acid reflux from your wine tasting. Yes. It's not in paper form. Uh, Damn it. (laughs) Slow crowd. Come on, people. Drink more wine. We need shots of espresso in here. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. No, so this is lactic acid and um, cider, what? Well, there is some malic acid, but it's mostly acetic acid. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah, it's, it's predominantly acetic acid. Um, but, you know, there's malic acid definitely during a fruit fermentation, um, you know, whether it's apple cider or any of your uh, other types of wine vinegars and things like that will have that type of acid. But the predominant one is acetic acid. Um, yeah, I mean, and I also was talking about this, uh, my vinegar class, like baking soda is phenomenal because it's an alkaline. So if you're feeling like super acidic, you do a little bit of baking soda with a dash of vinegar and some sparkling water. And it's like pff, the best. It's the best. It'll neutralize you like immediately. And it doesn't, it doesn't mess up your microbiome. It's not like taking something that's going to strip what your body needs. You know, it, it's working. Yeah, it's just... Pff. Yeah, and you see, I always find helpful a Maalox and a Blunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the... the... Do you guys make different blunts from 
We've got swisher sweets in LA that you can only dream about. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Oh, gosh, I don't even know what else did the cover. What do you? Yeah, we could ask, do questions. I, haven't tasted I actually it haven't tasted his. Taste yeah. yeah, so we'll have to do it. But I mean, just looking, they look similar, which is great. His is incredibly active, and mine's much more chill. Um, smelling them, his smells more tart. Mine has a bit more of a mineral salinity. Um, so mine might be more salty. Um, not 100%. Um, but what did you taste? Yeah, I get that. Mousy, the the one from the grocery store. Interesting, huh? Um, you had a question. Yeah. Could be a temperature variation. Yeah, temperature plays a big role. So um, ideally you want, you know, like a room temp out of direct sunlight. And that's the same for these as well. Um, you know, you're talking like from, you know, 59 to 85, which is a pretty broad window. But the higher, the faster it's going to go. The faster fermentation goes, the less nuanced your flavor is going to be because it's pushing quickly. It's not sort of taking its time and collecting all the flavors in the air around it and stuff. Um, so if you can, like, meet in the middle, you know, room temp, when I'd say, you know, 68 through the winter, you know, whatever... Um, is, is ideal, ultimately. Fermentations also create their own heat. That's part of the process. So as it's digesting and it's releasing carbon dioxide, that pushes out heat. So there is temperature variations that are going on inside. So if you also have your ferment in a hot room and it's generating its own heat, it could totally burn out and not have anything, you know, really flourishing inside of it. Were you going to add something? No, I okay. was just Yes. I picked up my cabbage from the farmer's market in Taos, New Mexico. Uh, I bought the last cab. I went through. I was like, I am not going to buy a cabbage from the grocery store. But I kept trying, and I couldn't find anybody with the cabbage. And I was on my way out defeated, and there was, like, one cabbage sitting on somebody's stand. And I was like, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. We talked about getting, trying to get it from a farmer's market, and if not, then like an organic grocery store. So you ended up getting from the market as well, yeah? Yeah, this is the cabbage I is, is, that I source is from Gibbons yeah. Farms, which is an organic, yeah. uh, strictly organic uh, farm, farmer's market farm. The, but the, and I'll come back to that, but the interesting thing also to talk about the flavor differentiations is the product itself is going to taste different because of the soil it was grown in, the temperature it was grown in, what else was growing around it. Like, his tastes very herbaceous to me. Like, I would almost think there's dill in here, right? Like, that's, I immediately was like, wow, dope. Mine's, like, very, like, straightforward. It's very hard to grow food in Taos. It's high altitude, and it's, um, it's defensive. Things, things grow harder. My cabbage was crazy hard. I had to use, like, the biggest bread. I basically used a saw to cut it in half. I was just like, 
It was like super, super, super dense. Um, and unlike anything I've experienced with the cabbage, I mean, that was the first time I've made sauerkraut in Taos. Um, so that also plays a role in how it's gonna taste. Um, my temperature in Taos, um, I think my average in the house is probably 66 degrees. Um, you know, it got a little cooler at night, um, but that was pretty much like how I had everything set and maintained. What about you? Uh, You're in LA, it was like 900. Uh, my cabbage was uh, very tender uh, oh, and juicy. All right. Very tender. Uh. Uh, and um, Did you massage it? Oh. Did you talk to it? So soft. <laughs> uh, and... Um, uh, but the temperatures, I think, were much high, higher because uh -huh. it was just whatever the... Uh, we're we're eco-minded and we don't keep our AC on unless it's like 98 degrees out. So yeah. it was probably in the... 70s. At night, it was like in the 60s. I think a day it was like 80-something. Wow. Uh, so I think that's why mine's a little more active. Is yeah. it's, it, it's higher temperature. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wonder if schlepping it on the plane also... Uh, did something to it. I don't know, but um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. No, no. It's just it's. Yeah. It, I think it's a little more advanced in here. It's because it was just warmer. How dare you? How? You know what? It's Russell. Let's move this. Just kidding. Byron, did you have a question? No, he was. I just didn't know if you had a question. Okay. You're just waving at me. Um, anyway, yeah, are we done? Oh, that was not your question. You were just yeah. letting us know to shut up. We have a question here. Understood. <laughs> this is my top secret X-rated schug, uh, fermented Yemeni hot sauce, uh, that I mm. promised to bring a few folks. Uh, mm. I made it from, uh, fermented, uh, chilies that I grew in my garden last year, and I had, uh, a small quantity left, and if you ever make fermented chili paste, it gets funky over time, but kind of in a good way. Uh, and I was left with uh, a small quantity, and I'm like, I'm going to make tzchug. Uh So tzchug, it's a Yemeni hot sauce that has, it's like chermoula, but it has aromatic spices in it. Uh, and anyway, so I made my own, and typically you don't, actually in Yemen and in Israel, you never use fermented chilies. They don't know about that. I did. And I got to admit, it's a superior, uh, a superior product. Of course it is. Uh, course uh, not, it is. not me per se, just I, I would only recommend making it with fermented chilies. Um, I, uh, I just have one last observation to make is that, you know, we, we're so accustomed to taking the products off the shelf and just putting them in our mouths, whether it's a wine or a beer or a hot sauce or anything. And we just sort of assume that there's some kind of uh, obscure occult process or industrial process that makes them happen. And we don't really have much idea. Uh, we know that someone makes a wine and someone's a better winemaker than others, but we don't really have much idea of what that process is like. And for me, making a wild fermented bread or making a pickle, uh, it's not making wine. It's a much, much simpler project, product and project. If you fuck up a batch of bread, you go, I'll just make another batch next time. Uh, if your chef dies and gets alcoholic, you can make a new one in a couple of weeks. 
wine, you get one chance a year, and it's a, it's a much more complex fermentation. However, the thing that I find energizing vis-a-vis my wine life is that we get by fermenting stuff on your own, and anybody can do it. I always try to encourage people to make their own pickles because it's delicious, and you can make them like you like them. You like a lot of garlic, add a lot of garlic, whatever. But it's, it's by taking back a bit of what we've exceeded to experts and putting them back. It's winemaking is a human practice, and making pickles is a human practice. It doesn't come from... Uh, from Zeus's head, fully, you know, fully born. It's something that people make through the prowess of their mind and their practice. And you know, with pickling, it's a much simpler thing. You are fermenting, though, and you get to watch something ferment before your very eyes. And as I was telling Jory before we started, and I mentioned this earlier, there's something really magical about it, even if you understand a, a little bit about the science. It is it's mysterious and magical. Uh, and so I always try to urge people... Make, make some pickles. The worst that's going to happen, it's going to suck. But they're not going to suck. Uh, and try your hand at making, making some sauerkraut or some sour pickles or, or making a, sour, a, a sourdough bread from your own chef. Um, it's not hard to do. Uh, wine making is hard to do. Making, making a sauerkraut is not. Yet, by doing so, we get to participate in this ancient practice of fermentation. Thanks, guys. Uh, Lou is going thank to... Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. This is going to segue right into uh, the art of fermentation, uh, which Lou is going to be moderating that so we can continue. Um, the art of pickle making, it's no big deal. Womp uh, <laughs> womp. <laughs> chirp chirp. That was for you, Lou. Um, so, yeah, uh, about five minutes we'll start the art and science of fermentation. Then we have one more at the end, uh, 5.30. Um, the ethics and aesthetics of natural wine. Tell your friends and come back. Thank you.